welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. You can find this and other episodes like it on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and YouTube. And you can help support the podcast through Patreon. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change. A time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. This episode's topic the mail must get through. In an era of weak federal government, it was the most expansive national service provided to the people, a source of patronage, corruption, popular praise, and social controversy. The post office in the Gilded Age delivered not only letters, but increasingly all sorts of mail order services and products and money sent far and wide, sometimes to be famously robbed on trains and stagecoaches. So how did the post office deal with the changing and ever far-flung America? with its new challenges in politics. With me today to discuss these issues and more is Professor Richard John of Columbia University. John, welcome. Uh, Thank you. Happy to be here. Pleasure's all mine. So let me start with the question that I ask uh, almost all my interviewees. Let us imagine an erstwhile uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, or at least the uh, postal inspector equivalent, comes to visit the burgeoning United States at the beginning of our period, say around 1866, in the middle of our period in the 1890s, and at the end of our period in 1920, to see how America provides mail, ser- uh, provides mail services, how well, who provides it, and on what basis. What would they see? What would have changed? What would have stayed the same? Well, an observer in 1866 would have, let's assume the observers from England, would have seen the uh, beginnings of free city delivery, which was an innovation that began the Civil War, the start of the railway mail service, which um, incredibly sorted the mail moving railroad cars, the presumption being that the mail should move just as fast as travelers, and he would also, it's a he, <clears throat> he would also observe that the only things in the mail in 1866 were letters, newspapers, magazines, uh, government documents, no parcels. If the same observer uh, returned in the 1890s, railway mail service was well established. There was a rudimentary uh, professional cadre within the post office following the Pendleton Act of 1883, administrators who were not subject to partisan dismissal. Uh, A high percentage of all postal employees, most of whom were postmasters, and whether or not they were employees is a good question, uh, they were subject to partisan dismissal every four years. But that cadre, those administrators, were not. The 1890s, a new headquarters building was emerging. 
Washington, D.C., on Pennsylvania Avenue. It was a uh, triumph of John Wanamaker, who was Postmaster General under uh, Benjamin Harrison. The observer would also see the beginnings of a free rural mail delivery. In 1866, you had free city delivery, but in the countryside, you still had to go to a post office. The 1890s, free rural delivery was beginning. Very expensive. Newspapers were heavy. But what's not in the mail? There are not parcels in the mail. Nothing heavier than four pounds. The United States, well, the English observer might conclude, was lagging behind European countries because we did not expand the facilities that the post office provided to include parcels as well as letters, newspapers, and magazines. Now, from the point of view of the many American business groups that were opposed to parcel delivery, that was just fine because they saw parcel delivery as a threat to their uh, stores, to the uh, to dealers in hardware and all kinds of goods, uh, pharmaceuticals, that did not want the government to be able to send items directly from manufacturer to citizen. If you come in 1920, well, in some ways that's a high watermark for the post office. Parcel post has been established. The Taft administration, uh, the Wilson administration, got ahead of myself. Uh, parcels now, 20 pounds, sometimes uh, even larger than that. The regulations differed could be shipped anywhere across the country. They were being shipped by truck. Uh, airplanes were being used mostly for mostly for letters. And in the Taft administration, which just preceded the Wilson administration, rudimentary postal banking was instituted. So this was a real high watermark for the government. It was widely regarded as the greatest business in the world triumph of democracy, triumph of civilization. So what a change that observer would have seen from 1866 to 1920. That really is very remarkable. Um, and speaking of changes, uh, I can, I'll start addressing uh, some of the uh, issues you mentioned uh, in your introduction. Let's start with the question of the Pendleton Act and civil service reform. Uh, one of the very big political fights uh, during this era is famously the debate over what was known as the spoil system, whereby, as you said, whichever party won office, whether it was in the city or a state or at the national level at the White House, um, they had the right to dismiss all the employees who had uh, who had previously been working uh, for the uh, for the civil service uh, and the post office was the largest of these and put in their own people. And a lot of people wanted to put in, at the very least, a level of a professional cadre, uh, not just at the national level, but also at city and state level, uh, who were less easily removed and who had to be removed for cause. Um, so before we get into what, who exactly was the type of person who was employed by the post office before these reforms happened? Uh, and how much did this change um, after reforms were instituted and presidents started to try and uh, hire based more on merit? 
Well, the vast majority of postal workers, and I hesitate to call them employees because many, if not most, were part-time, were the so-called fourth-class postmasters. They ran a store, small business, and for them, post office was something they did on the side. It brought foot traffic to their business. They might have done it um, as a courtesy to their neighbors. Uh, they might have done it in the expectation that it could be advantageous politically. Um, so that was the vast majority. And they were not affected directly by the Pendleton Act. That was kept out. Uh, it was considered very important for congressmen to have patronage to distribute. And those fourth class postmasterships were in some ways the jewel in the crown. If they couldn't distribute new post routes, the network was getting filled out by 1883, they could at least distribute postmasterships. But a network as large, as uh, complicated as the post office network depended on lots of other people. Uh, railway mail service had middle managers who were in charge of the routing of the mail as it was picked up and dropped off from moving railroad cars. And the clerks in the railway mail service who actually rode the railway cars had to be extraordinarily adept at sorting letters quickly so that a letter could move as fast as a passenger. That was the that was the expectation. That was the hope. Those men, and they were all men, uh, would become largely exempt. There weren't that many of them. They'd be largely exempt from kind of partisan manipulation. Of course, the postmaster general would change the presidential administration. The postmaster general, in fact, was in the president's cabinet. Uh, he would remain in the president's cabinet until 1970, and he had been since uh, the Jackson administration. The third group of postal officers mentioned the fourth class postmasters, they mentioned the railway mail service, are the, the city clerks. And they're sort of in an, an interim uh, position. And they are uh, still largely under the jurisdiction of the city postmaster. And that can be a political plaything, uh, but you, even there, perhaps especially there, you have to have a, a highly skilled core group that is not subject to partisan dismissal. The merchants, and by the 1880s, and the other Americans are going to notice if quality of mail delivery uh, is is harmed, level of service declines, and the Letters are being uh, sent back and forth uh, multiple times a day in the big city offices. So those are the three main groups of postal officers, and they're affected differently by Pendleton Act. That's, very, that's a very uh, good, informative introduction and breakdown. Let's move on to the, uh, the next topic. You mentioned how um, business groups were often quite opposed to the idea of, of the post office handling more than letters. Um, 
how did the how did the attitude of I guess Congress and uh, the occupants of the White House shift uh, from this era known for everything being run by a business to saying no, the post office is a is a service. It needs to be run even at a loss, and it needs to provide for the people. Uh, how and why did that change? Well, the post office had been run as a service from the beginning. Now, the phrase postal service only emerges in the 1840s, and there was the expectation, which was enunciated in Congress in 79, is that perhaps the post office would be a source of revenue, as was the post office in Britain, the post office in France. But that expectation uh, very quickly gave way in Congress. It, it had no prominent defenders after the 1790s, and even Alexander Hamilton gives up on it. So in the first half of the 19th century, and I have to back up a bit if we're talking about postal finance, the first half of the 19th century, the expectation was the institution would break even. And it did, in fact, generate revenue under John McLean for a couple of years, the 1820s, and so on. But just break even. And that was kind of a constraint on overreach. 1851 was a new postal law that relaxed that presumption. That is to say, no longer was it taken for granted that the post office should break even. And from that year on up to 1970, in most years, the post office, in fact, lost money. That is to say, it had to go to Congress in order to get an appropriation. Now, losing money is a modern term. That assumes it's a business. Profit and loss. This was not the way lawmakers thought about the post office. It was providing a service, as you quite rightly say, for the entire population. And it was uh, it did so in a way that uh, was predicated on subsidies. There were subsidies for newspapers. There were subsidies for magazines, subsidies for service in thinly settled regions. So all that was very much in place by the 1890s when the agitation begins for what is called Parcels Post, which was uh, had, had, was being introduced in the major uh, post offices of Europe, England and France. In fact, you had an anomalous situation. You could mail a parcel from, say, Germany to the United States, and because of the international postal agreement, you had to deliver that parcel, but you could not send a parcel the other way from the United States to a Germany, and you could not send a parcel weighing more than four pounds inside the United States. And there was a reformist logic for that. The reformist logic was that post office had been established to circulate information, uh, which was a more specialized term than now, or what was sometimes called intelligence. And it was agreed, sensibly, that parcels are not information or intelligence. So why should the post office have anything to do with them? That should be the work of independent businesses private enterprise, or known as the Expresses. And the, some of these firms may be uh, familiar. Uh, Wells Fargo, American Express, before it got into credit services, uh, was one of these parcel delivery companies. The parcel delivery companies uh, would become quite unpopular uh, with a large percentage of the electorate. Uh, they were not that well run. I, I worked in the papers of them. Some of them were stored in the in the World Trade Center. I worked on them before that terrible uh, tragedy, September 11th. Uh, 
but they had a lock on the market. So if you wanted to send something quickly, uh, you had to you had to work with them. So a parcel quickly. I mean, otherwise it's just arranging it to send it as as regular freight on a railroad car. Uh, and and that was it was kind of a complicated bargain there. Express companies were able to, in effect. Uh, siphon off revenue from the railroads for the high volume, uh, high value freight. And the merchants lobbied Congress, that is to say the wholesale merchants and retail merchants, lobbied Congress to prevent the expansion of Parcels Post because they feared it would uh, undermine, if not destroy, their business altogether. And farmers and other uh, groups today, we might call them consumer groups, uh, they were very much in favor of expanding parcel post, as as were uh, the department store magnets. But the department store magnets, including say John Wanamaker, they knew <laughs> they knew full well that if they got associated with the parcel post uh, initiative, that would be a kiss of death. So they stayed on the sidelines. But companies like Sears Roebuck and, and Montgomery Ward did not mail their goods through the post office. That would have been illegal. They, they could mail catalogs through the post office and you could mail certain high value, low weight uh, uh, consumer goods such as watches. That's how Sears got started. But you don't get parcel post until the Wilson administration, until the uh, 19-teens when the, the power of that um, business lobby uh, was uh, finally broken and the United States joined the other major nations of the world in, in having a parcels post. That is to say, in expanding the mandate of the post office to include not only information or intelligence, but also goods. Once again, a great answer. Um, I want to point to what you talked about, how the post office was about relaying information and what they called intelligence. Um, in this era, um, and at the end of this era, there was a very big issue with laws on the books that allowed or required uh, postmasters or postal inspectors to, at the very least, effectively act as censors of what was called second-class mail, um, newspapers, magazines. Um, one such case was the, Comst or the famous what's called the Comstock Law that allowed people, uh, that allowed people to... Um, basically seize and destroy uh, anything in the mail which might be considered lewd. Uh, and the second case was during the First World War um, when anything which might be considered as opposing the war was um, also seized and destroyed or not allowed in the mail. Um, what was the, to the extent that we can know, what was the general attitude within the postal service itself, the postmaster, general and the postmasters towards the idea of using the mail as a censorship service? Well, that's a good question. This is a much misunderstood topic. Uh, postal network was extraordinarily extensive. It reached into homes. It reached uh, across the country. So uh, it was not surprising that what we now call the Comstock laws would have been enacted. Uh, localities, states limited the circulation of uh, certain kinds of information, and they certainly limited the circulation of certain goods. Aberificants, uh, pamphlets advocating 
uh, birth control, contraception. Uh, these were uh, subject to <laughs> stoppage uh, within inside the states. But the post office then, since it spanned the states, it, it was in a different legal uh, position. Anthony Comstock was a reformer in uh, New York, a self-claimed reformer who was very concerned about information regarding sexuality, information regarding uh, abortion, information regarding birth control. And he was granted kind of semi-official status to stop the circulation of those items. And there were, there were a number of cases uh, involving magazines, free love, so-called free love magazines. So from one perspective, well, that's terrible that we don't do that now. But from another perspective, this was a response to the kind of mismatch of scale between the post office and the states and localities. And in fact, uh, the best uh, historical work on this subject by uh, Andrea Tone, a book called Devices and Desires, published some time ago, she showed pretty clearly that the, uh, the kind of contraceptive entrepreneurs were able to get around Comstock quite effectively. Uh, and use the post office to send contraceptives, to send aborificants, to send information about birth control. So it's an interesting question as to how extensively that uh, kind of matter was uh, was restricted. Uh, if you read her book, as, and I commend it to your audience, uh, because it's a wonderful study, it does raise some questions about the effectiveness of the censorship uh, regime. Censorship itself was not controversial, uh, although Comstock did raise the hackles of, uh, you, you call it the, uh, the kind of the anti-clerical uh, left. Um, was he broadly popular, unpopular? Later generations regarded as unpopular. In his own time, uh, there really is no controversy within the upper ranks of the post office about his uh, about his work. Now, the First World War, of course, is a is a different situation, and that that's a much more contentious moment in the history of the institution. Publications that are advocating opposition to the war, publications that are advocating that uh, that uh, young men not uh, respond to uh, the, the conscription, uh, those were uh, banned. Uh, and, and that's their publications. They have a address. <laughs> you know where they're being entered into the post office from. Uh, and that will then lead to famous uh, lawsuits in which a uh, number of the distributors of those periodicals end up in jail and the emergence of American Civil Liberties Union to uh, renegotiate norms concerning what can go in the mail. Um, and that, that was a watershed for the relationship of the post office, the citizenry, and um, let, let's call them activist groups. You hadn't been quite like that since the 1830s when uh, Southerners, uh, Southern state governments uh, uh, successfully blocked the circulation inside their domain of uh, literature dealing with the slavery issue. But in the 19-teens, it's not a state versus federal issue. It's it's a question of uh, country is 
about to go to war, country is at war, certain kinds of information are, uh, well, they're seditious, they're subversive, they're potentially treasonous. That information should not be circulated. I think that uh, pretty much covers uh, the topics that I wanted to discuss and in a very thorough manner. Uh, I learned a lot and I hope my listeners have learned a lot. Professor John, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. I'd like to once again remind my listeners that you can listen to this podcast on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and YouTube, and you can support the podcast on Patreon. See you all next time at Avi's Conversational Corner.